Welcome to a new edition of the Neon Jazz Interview Series with jazz cat, photographer, music producer, engineer, and composer Terry Manning. This very talented Renaissance man is releasing his new 2016 album called Planets with his trio, Three at Sea, featuring his DJ, son, and producer, Lucas Manning, and flutist and orchestral player, Christine Gengelhoff. It's a sonic landscape flush with jazz, classical elements, and many more surprises. He was raised in El Paso, Texas, and learned quite a bit in his early years from the great musician Bobby Fuller, who sang the song, I Fought the Law. He snapped many photos of music luminaries over the years, like Booker T. Jones, Isaac Hayes, ZZ Top, Lenny Kravitz, and many more. But it was in Memphis on April 3, 1968, that he captured the final images of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., Terry is also prolific as a music producer and engineer, and we're going to get into all that. He's got fascinating stories, so please get to know Terry and dig this interview, my friends. How are you? I'm wonderful. Hey, thanks for taking a little time out for me today. Oh, thanks for having me. Right on. I'm going to go ahead and dive in here. I know you're a busy man. I know you got a lot going on. But in your own words, kind of give me an idea of what's been going on with you lately. Oh, gosh. Well, as, as I've always done for many years, I work on music all the time which is uh, quite a bit of it rock and pop and, uh, of course, uh, historically been with the stuff like ZZ Top and Led Zeppelin and different things, Shakira, Lenny Kravitz, things like that. But I'm always working on new music uh, as well, so I've got a couple of new artists that I'm, I'm producing now and getting ready, a group called Hell for Stout, very powerful rock group, a country singer named Sierra Willett. But those are new things that hopefully people will know in the future. And also, I'm uh, a photographer and been doing photographic exhibitions all over the U.S. and then turning into all over the world now with uh, gallery exhibits in uh, recently Boston, Providence, Rhode Island, Memphis, El Paso, Texas, all sorts of places. So it's just fun and exciting getting around doing the things you'd like to do, you know. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Life well spent, man, for sure. The one thing I do, I want to get into your photography. I want to get into your music life. But I want to start at the top of the hour here and ask you, your newest 2016 album, Planets, which is kind of an amalgamation of different genres, and especially jazz, with your trio, Three at Sea. Talk to me a little bit about this album, how it came about. You get to work with your son on it. What, 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 is, what does this album feel like to you? You know, it's just something I've always uh, enjoyed doing is, is composing instrumental pieces, and I've done it for many years, sort of classical sometimes, sort of jazz sometimes, sort of uh, old-style rock and roll instrumental sometimes. Uh, but a few years ago, uh, I started working with a classical music trio called Seaforce, three-piece ensemble, and, and the, one of the main instruments was flute, and the flutist, Christine Gangelhoff, was just really good, and we, I really got uh, interested, and I've always loved flute anyway, and I started thinking of flute more as a lead instrument than I had been, you know, rock, rock guitar and keyboards and things like that. And then when my son, Lucas, uh, got to be a DJ and, and started doing electronic music composition and uh, all the things DJs do in Edinburgh, Scotland, I just got this idea of why not feature those things plus some of the things I can do. So we made up a, a three-piece band, a jazz-ish ensemble, and I just started composing songs in that that I just felt, things that I thought. And they weren't originally songs for the planets, but uh, Christine, the flutist, uh, came up 
with the, that idea at some point after I had a number of the songs done and said, well, what if they were, you know, related to the planets? And that I thought was a great idea. So I picked the ones that seemed to go towards certain planets and then composed the rest based on that with that in mind. And of course, we know, yes, the classical composer Holst had the, the planets, so we weren't trying to copy that, but it's a, it's a new day now. So right on. Different genre. And then I was able to uh, record a lot of the basic tracks with me playing a lot of the instruments. Uh, Christine then did her flute solos and other parts. And then we brought in session musicians. And uh, I had the horn section and some string sections doing various things and then sent it all over to my son Lucas in Scotland and he put in a lot of beats and sound effects and sort of the electronica thing so I don't know what it turned into it's sort of an amalgamation as you said of styles and genres and and whatever but I, I guess it leans a little in the jazz idiom it, it does it's, it's a great sonic landscape I've had the chance to listen to it through SoundCloud and it's just there's a lot of textures going on there's a lot of it, it's a nice weaving together of sound. I, I really dig it. Um, well, thank you so much. Yeah, I even put, I'm, I lived in Memphis for a number of years and did R&B music, and uh, I, I even brought in the Memphis soul horn section in places. <laughs> right on, man. Right on. It had to be pretty cool to work with your son on this. Oh, that's so gratifying. Of course, everyone loves their kids, and you want them to do well, and you want to do things with them, but it, there's something just really special about sitting down, even if it's sometimes in person and sometimes over Skype, but uh, sitting down with your own son and talking through really grown-up ideas, and, and you know, he's 25 now, so... Uh, He's able to be a real adult, <laughs> and it's just really cool, really cool to to actually work with with your son on something. And so, yeah, that was a wonderful experience. I really enjoy that. So let's go back into the lineage of Terry Manning here. We're going to go back to El Paso, Texas. What was it about your childhood, your beginnings, that gave you this love of of photography and of music? You know, it's hard to say what, but I know. From the very beginnings of being a little kid and just hearing rock and roll come over the radio, I guess Elvis and Buddy Holly and some of the early rock things, Eddie Cochran, just it was so exciting to me. And uh, I just all, my mom was a music teacher, a piano teacher. My dad was a singer and a violinist, so uh, uh, there was music around, and and it's sort of, I guess, in the genes if that's a, a real thing, but. Uh, uh, I wanted to do my own thing right from the start, so I just would, I, I made them get me a guitar, and I would do my best to learn to bang things out, and then as soon as the young uh, junior high kids could get together, three or four of the guys who ha had instruments and thought they were players, we'd get together and, and play little party things in the backyards and things like that, so I just grew up loving music and wanting to do it. Now, as far as the photography, I've always just I can't draw a stick horse. I'm a terrible artist, a graphic artist type thing. I can't paint or draw. And I really did poorly in uh, even kindergarten, I remember, on those things. But I always like beautiful things, and I like to express 
I, you know, everyone wants to express what's inside them, I guess, in some artistic way. So my way, I, I just say, hey, photography's good because I don't have to draw a picture. I can take a picture. When I got to Memphis in um, uh, left El Paso and, and moved to Memphis, Tennessee, uh, I hooked up with several people who also were into pho- photography, one of the prime ones being a guy named Bill Eggleston, now known as William Eggleston, who uh, turned into one of the most famous photographers in the world. So I was just around a great influence and influences musically and photographically that that let me do things creatively that I guess otherwise I wouldn't have been able to do. So let's talk a little bit about music here. What was the first instrument you played? Well, my mom tried to make me take piano lessons, and I did bang around on it and but, you know, it, it's your mom. It's, oh, mom, please, I want to do my thing. So uh, I ended up making them buy me a, a Montgomery Ward's acoustic guitar. So that right. was where I started uh, hitting around on that and listening to Roy Orbison and, you know, all the things on the radio and trying to come up with, figure out what they were playing. Never really had any lessons, but uh, that got, I got a little better and then ended up my first, Electric guitar was a Fender Telecaster, which I still have. It's a great 1952. Now it's a classic vintage guitar. But when I bought it used, of course, it was a few years old. But, uh, yeah, so I guess guitar was first. And then I realized as I grew older that I should have taken those piano lessons from my mom. So I got more into... uh, in, I actually enrolled at university at the University of Memphis, then called Memphis State, but at in the music department, and was doing regular theory and composition and things. And until they threw me out because I, I was faking it and, and not really reading the music, I was memorizing it. <laughs> wow! Wow! Interesting. So on this new album, Planets, what instruments do you play? You say you played all the instruments. Well, not all, but a, a number of them. I played, um, w- the one thing I really wanted to feature is one of my favorite instruments, the vibraphone, which of course yeah. is uh, uh, steel bars with a, a little thing that turns around and makes it uh, warble, <laughs> makes a cool yeah. sound. I've just always loved that. So I played vibraphone. I did all the bass. I bought, uh, I'm, I am an acu- uh, um, electric rock bass player. And I played bass for many years, but I thought, well, how hard could it be to do this upright bass? <laughs> well, it's harder <laughs> than I thought. But but I did. I bought a really great upright bass and learned uh, to go over from electric to that. So I played all of the uh, the bass on it, and uh, then a few all, all the keyboard things I did, the uh, pianos or organs and things like that. So I, I put and and I did some drums on it too, but. But the flute is featured quite a bit, of course, and uh, and the session players make up for whatever I lack. Right on. So when you were a kid, what did you want to be when you grew up? Was it always a, a creative pursuit? Did you envision the way you are now being your life, or were there other dreams? You know, I really did because uh, I never thought I would have a day job or really wanted to. Of course, I've worked. We all you know, in high school, I would get a summer job, and then I later did a couple of jobs. But for the most part, my whole life, I've just been freelance, independent, and doing the things I, I love to do, but, which is very, I feel extremely fortunate to be able to actually live in life, and my jobs are the things I love, because I guess sometimes that doesn't happen. So, uh, 
but yeah, I never thought, uh, oh, I'll, I'll go up and be any, any, any sort of job or professional, like lawyer or, or although I did do some pre-law at school, but, uh, you know, doctor, anything like that. I just wanted to, wanted to do the things I liked, music and photography. So were there albums when you were a kid that blew your doors down that opened up kind of your music curtains? Well, I hate to say it, but when I was a kid, singles were the, the thing, uh, when I was a little kid. And so it was, uh, Eddie Cochran and Buddy Holly just blew me away. Elvis too, but it was not quite the same rawness maybe as, as Eddie Cochran. But, uh, but I guess album wise, by the time it got in, into albums in the seventies, the, the rock groups, uh, of course I loved Zeppelin. I was a huge Beatle fan. So a lot of things like that kind of blew me away, but I've always loved big band music. I loved Tommy Dorsey. I loved uh, a whole lot of the great big bands that my dad used to play and listen to. And uh, I've always loved classical music. Bach, uh, Vivaldi, uh, a lot of those uh, kind of composers just, I, I just love music. If it's good, I like it. Yeah, absolutely. So you mentioned Memphis State. They sent you away because you were memorizing things. But let me ask you, before that happened, what did you learn in a formal music environment? Were there real lessons that you got that have stuck with you to today? Absolutely. In the early days when I was started in their, in their music school, we had uh, theory and ear training and the things that you start off with always as an actual music student. And I, I absorbed those, even though I didn't stick with the, the rigidity that the, the the true, fully reading musician and, and composer, a lot of composers do. I didn't stick with that because, well, the guy I had uh, who was my sort of mentor in that regard uh, was named Tom Ferguson. He was a jazz player, but he was in the music school as an instructor, and he had come from the Eastman School, so he knew classical. He knew he could read and write everything, you know, totally fluently. And he actually noticed me in class. He said, wait, you're not looking up at the paper and reading it, are you? Are you a rock and roll player? <laughs> <laughs> and we got to be friends, and uh, and he laughed about it. He said, I get that. I'm a jazz guy, so I know what you mean, but, you know, you, you're really not in, in the right discipline. Go play in your rock band. But I never forgot uh, the, the way music goes together, the the, the, the actual basic theory I just read so slowly that you wouldn't think I read, but uh, these days. But uh, yeah, those things did stick with me, and I, I, I do pull those back out uh, all the time when doing things like I did on the planets. So, from your early years in your bio, this kind of stick, stuck out to me, and I want to ask you about it. Uh, you said after undergoing treatment from his first mentor, Bobby Fuller, <laughs> of the, I fought the law thing. What, what's that all about? Well, living in El Paso at the time, I was in junior high school, and I thought the biggest star in the world was Bobby Fuller, because locally, he was. He was a few years older, of course, but he had his own record label, he had his own nightclub, and he was only like 20 or something, but he seemed to have everything. So all of us just thought Bobby Fuller is the guy. Now, we didn't know, of course, that at the time he was big in our area, the, the south, far west Texas, the southwest area, but not really big anywhere else. But when you're in a place, especially as isolated as El Paso was at that time, hundreds of miles from anywhere else and 
no internet and uh, we didn't take airplanes places, you know. And so to us, that was the world. And then later he did uh, go on to uh, move to Los Angeles and did have worldwide hits. I fought the law and Love's Made a Fool of You and some of the things, Letter Dance that were great big hits on Dick Clark and American Bandstand and everything. But at the time, uh, he was the local hero. So I, uh, he actually played at a dance at our junior high school. And uh, I went up and I didn't like dancing. So I went up and asked him if I could sit in. And he, instead of saying, oh, you stupid little kid, go away. He said, sure, come on. Because I guess to him, it really wasn't that important, the junior high dance. We thought it was. but So he actually let me play a, a Stratocaster with him and he played along and I sang Peggy Sue and, <laughs> so, and then I would start hanging out as much as I could as a naive little kid bothering him and he was always very nice and uh, taught me many things I, I would ask about how do you produce a record how do you write a song what are you thinking about when you're doing this and and he would take his be very gentle and nice and take his time and answer so he really helped me out a lot he gave me an early education, even though he was, again, only a 20-year-old local guy, he, he really was ahead of his time. So that that really helped me. I, w- I don't think I would have done music as a career if he hadn't been so kind to me. Well, and it seems like you've been around luminaries and legends and all kinds of people throughout your life. You snapshots in Memphis of Booker T, Isaac Hayes. You talked about Zeppelin and ZZ Top and all these guys. And you've been in the studio, you produced and recorded. What do you learn when you look at your life and you think about all of these acts that you've been around? What have you learned from them? What have you garnered from that kind of uh, being around those kinds of people? You know, that's a, a very good question because there is something that I've finally been able to quantify and realize. Every one of these people, like a, a Shakira, like a Lenny Kravitz, like. Jimmy Page and Zeppelin or Billy Gibbons in, in ZZ Top. Every one of these people, of course they're talented. We know that because we hear it. But more than anything, they are just completely driven. They all know that they have what it takes and that they're going to get it done. And I just see in all of them a relentless drive. Not in a bad way, not, you know, pushing over people and knocking them down out of the way. I just mean every day they, they don't slack off. They get up and they are working hard. They're super professional. So I've seen that over and over in in the big stars that I've been lucky to be around. So I do try to do that. I get up early. I work hard. I'm the last one to leave just because I know from seeing it, that's what it takes to, to make your dreams come alive. So as a producer and an engineer, what have you learned over the years doing this? You've, you've been parts of a lot of projects. What have, what have you learned from this process? How has it helped you as a human being? Oh, the, the the key thing to me is that music is great. It's a human element, but it's not it's not Winston Churchill saving the world in World War II or or someone coming up with a cure for cancer or how to transplant a heart. So I think we need to keep it in perspective. And I think we what I've learned is to try to treat everybody nicely, be as kind and honest as you can, but go for your dreams, jump, you know, go for it, but but just keep it in perspective and remember that life goes on with or without these things, and it, we just, I don't know, it's hard to, to say it, I guess, exactly, but 
I just like to to make sure that music is very important, photography very important, but remember that people are the most important and taking care of your family or just being kind and helping other people is is the most important. So I hope that sounds okay. <laughs> that sounds beautiful. And you know, the one thing about a lot of artists or, or folks that get into the line of work that you're in is that they may do one thing. They play an instrument or they may produce, but they don't do this broad swath of what you do. You play instruments, you produce, you record, and photography is obviously a huge part of your life. How do all of these co-mingle together and feed off each other for you? I don't know because I, I, one thing I do know is that if I go out to take photographs, I'm not necessarily thinking music at that time. I've sw- turned a switch in my brain. Or if I go into a recording, well, for instance, I've been in thousands and thousands of recording sessions and with people like Otis Redding or Al Green and, you know, all the people we've talked about. But on m- most of those occasions, I didn't take a camera and say, oh, let's stop recording for a minute. Would you stand here and let me take a photo? Because that's unprofessional. So yeah. I, I I delineate the task at hand and and try to be as professional as possible and do that thing. But I could kick myself now for not taking pictures of Otis Redding at the time or of, of Al Green at the time or of so many things. I've got a few which in, in session where where it, it it was appropriate. But so that that showed is a part of the way I put it all together. I it's all one thing in my head, but I do compartmentalize and, and, and separate it to go do whatever it is that I feel, okay, today I'm doing this and I'm really concentrating on it because it, it takes the deep concentration and, and actual thought. It's not haphazard, even shooting photos or whatever. It, it's not a haphazard thing. You have, to, you have to decide what it is you want, find that, uh, as Cartier Brassard, the famous photographer, called it the decisive moment of that very instant where the, the picture's the best and you're in the right place, the right angle, the, the things in the background are correct, and you take that one thing. You don't take, I at least, don't take 50 and then hope one later was good. And so I try to do that in music as well, is just just hit the nail on the head every time. But to, in my head, it's all one big thing, and I'm just lucky to be able to do those things, I guess. Absolutely. So Memphis, Tennessee, April 3, 1968, you get some of the last images of Dr. King. What was that like? What, what, what did that feel like for you? It felt different then than it feels now because with the, the lens of history, I, I look back and I, I can't, I almost can't believe it. But at the time, it was just another day, of course. Now, Dr. King would come around. I worked at Saks Records at the time and, uh, he would come around the offices or the studios on occasion, not all, hanging out all the time, but when he was in the area, he was friends with Al Bell, who was the one of the prime people uh, behind Stacks and also producer uh, extraordinaire of the Staple Singers and others. But they were friends from Washington in the early days. Al had been in the same civil rights movement. So uh, King, Dr. King would come around. And I would see him, and, and he didn't really know me like, hey, Terry, or anything like that, I guess. But he, he was used to seeing me, you know, in the hallways or with Al or, or whatever. So it, it was another day of doing things, although that man in particular almost seemed to have a – he had a radiating karma, almost a halo around his head that you could tell this is really somebody. So I knew that. 
but I didn't really realize how big and important a person he was and how historical it would be. That particular day, Al had called me and asked if I could use my new car, first new car I had just gotten as a teenager, to uh, go out to the airport in Memphis and pick up, not put Dr. King in my car and drive him, but, you know, take some bags. Or They had a lot of people coming in and a lot of baggage. And uh, so I said, sure, and happened to be there as he came right off the plane in the concourse hallways, had my camera, so I took 13 photos that day. And then just a few hours later, he was killed. And that was the first death I had really been close to or been around up front. You know, oh, gosh, a person I just saw is dead. That was weird to me. So I put those in a box and did not get them out from 1968 until just a few months ago. Wow. And finally felt I could do it. And and they, when they came in the, the photography shows, the exhibits that I do, people just, uh, to be honest, they kind of freak out about it because they're very close. They're very personal. I wasn't using a telephoto lens or anything. I was just right up next to him, in, almost in his face with the camera. And you see a an apprehension in him, you see stubble on his face, you see he got up early to catch the flight and you can see it in his eyes, you know, so much going on. But yeah, I I didn't see it like I see it now. Now it's amazing and historical to me and then it was just, okay, doing another thing today. Why did you keep it in the box for so long? I didn't want to face it. I I felt like it was almost sacrilegious to trot out pictures of, of... this important, I just, I felt bad about it. I don't know. I just couldn't see it. I, I, it's hard to describe it. But finally, uh, someone, uh, Chris Klepper, at, uh, who was at MIT in their photography department, knew I had them, and he convinced me, get them out. It's really important, and it's good. You know, it, it would honor him. So it it, it really kind of changed my my opinion and and I'm glad I got them out now because it, it is good to see. You know, it was historical. It was a an important time. Absolutely. Let me ask you this from a photography standpoint, since you're this is what you do. Do you still do 35 millimeter, or have you graduated to the or however you want to say it? Have you gone on to the uh, the digital revolution? I still have all my cameras. I've got my 35 millimeter Leicas and. Uh, and the things that I, that I used to shoot with, even a six by nine format, large, larger format. But I have gone towards digital. I do have several digital cameras, including a Leica that feels like my old ones did. And I do, I don't, it's not about the medium to me. It's not about which is more authentic or which is better or which does certain things. It's still all about the image, the, the vision, the picture itself, much more so than than the what how what you do it with. I'd rather see a great photo taken with a with one of those Kodak in, uh, instant cameras in the cardboard box than than a bad photograph taken with a great camera. So, uh, uh, but I, I have gone digital to some degree, well, to quite a degree. And in fact, in the printing for years back in the day, I had my dark rooms always black and white dark rooms. I hated, I couldn't do color. It was way too hard at home, but I had home dark rooms for years, still do, but I don't, but anyway, it's, I've now gone to digital printers, scanners, and I actually like how it does, it does, you can do things you couldn't even do, or were very difficult to do in the uh, the analog type domain. 
So let me ask you this. Of all the photos of all of the musicians and folks that you've taken over the years, what have been some that have stood out for you? Not your favorite, per se, but just when you think back to your photographic brain of all of these shows and performances and performers, is there a soft spot for you for some of them? Well, of course, you can take the – it's not a performer, but we could do the Dr. King things, but that's, that's sort of – on its own level, a different thing. And I can love, uh, t- I've taken a lot of photographs of Lenny Kravitz. Uh, in fact, we'll probably, we're doing a book of called Living with Lenny of all Lenny photographs, and he's writing some text for it. But, uh, and Billy Gibbons and ZZ Top and, and the Staple Singers recording and things like that. But really to me, I know this may sound funny, but it's not about the person. It's much more about the image. So the things I like the best are usually the things I've shot most recently and that had the the sort of whatever, I hate the word art or artistic, but the, the kind of creative or artistic look to it that I wanted. And that might be something like a doorknob or a, or a you know, any little thing. It may not even be any person or it may not be a, an important person. But it's all about the image itself because, again, what I'm trying to do is paint pic- paint pictures with the camera since I can't draw. <laughs> so it's really much more about that. And I've just been lucky that some of them are of famous musical people or political people. But I've got, a, a, for instance, a photograph of, of I call horsies, of some children's uh, horse rides in a park with the old springs under them uh, that they used to have. And... That's, to me, one of my favorite pictures ever because I took it recently and I love it, but it's not of anybody. I hope yeah. that explains it. Absolutely it does, yeah. You know, Miles Davis always said it takes a long time to find your inner voice. you got to really work on it. And I'm going to kind of tweak that quote a little bit and ask you this. Over the years, you've had to refine who you are and what your approach to your art. What would you say your vision is? To me, well, and musically it's one thing, and photographically it's probably another, although they probably tie together. But photographically, I would say it's it's a documentarian, almost a news photographer, photojournalist, in a way to to see things that maybe everybody sees every day and walks right past and don't find a, necessarily a beauty in. But if you stop and look at that and analyze it, you can see, oh, look how these colors go together, or look how the 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 background makes this certain thing look really cool in the foreground. Or it's just documenting things. I don't set things up. I don't pose people or do things. I just find things. And then I find what I think is the best angle to shoot it from and to the way to present it, and that hopefully later somebody gets that and looks at it and says, well, I'll be damned. Look at that. I, I walked right past that, and I didn't see how it looked like that. So to me, that's how it is now. Musically, you are, instead of documenting, more creating from the ground up. So there it's it's finding what's in you and needs to come out. Uh, the old John Lee Hooker quote, it's in him and it's got to come out. It's an emotion inside that you want to transfer over to a medium that then goes to people. And then, uh, as in photography, you get a reaction from them. Hopefully they like it and go, I felt that way or I'm, I've loved someone like that or, or I've liked that, I, I've been against that political stance too or whatever. Or even even fine, they hate it. 
but the, you've got a reaction from them. You've 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 engendered something that they wouldn't have thought of otherwise from something that came out of you. So, again, hard to describe, but that's sort of how I see it, I guess. Sure. So you've had a lot of teachers in your life. You've been around a lot of people that I would consider mentors, whether it's by osmosis or direct teaching. Uh, not, I'm not asking you who your favorite teacher is, but who has laid down lessons in your head that you still think about to this day? Several people I can think of. I mentioned Bobby Fuller earlier. Uh, Steve Cropper, who was, the, of course, the guitarist in Booker T and the MGs and uh, one of the producers at Stax, taught me an awful lot of things. And he... Uh, and Rhett, he didn't wasn't being a teacher. I was just around him, so I would see what he did, and he would tell me things. But he actually brought me in the door uh, when no one, as a little teenager, into stacks. When why in the world would someone? But he either saw something or or needed my help or <laughs> whatever. Uh, and so he was very important. A guy named John Fry, who was the founder and owner of Ardent Studios in Memphis, and a great. Uh, an audio technician taught me a lot of things, literally as a mentor, you know, specifically. Uh, Al Bell that I mentioned from Stax, I learned a lot of about life from him, about being kind and doing things, having a good philosophical base, coming from a good place to do things rather than just haphazardly going out and doing it and, and hoping, you know, starting with a good solid foundation. So, Gee, there were probably a lot of others. I don't want to leave people out, but uh, I've been a sponge for sure. Beautiful. So I want to ask you this. You've seen a lot of musicians in your time firsthand. You obviously love music. Who would you consider either your music or your jazz heroes? Wow, again, so hard because there's so many greats. You mentioned Miles Davis. That's hard to, to not love. I loved, I liked a guy named Bob James who had who I love the way he – I don't know if you remember him, but he yeah. – the way – way he did some string compositions and the way he would use sixes and nines on the top was very cool. Uh, uh, intervals I'm talking about, musical intervals. Um, gosh, so many things. There were so many classical people I just loved. J.S. Bach, to me, is the all-time... You can almost recreate uh, modern pop music, uh, Western music. You could almost start with him and make it all up from there. He was so foundational. Uh, and if you go to the rock idiom, uh, I think you could look back to Robert Johnson, the blues artist from the 30s in Mississippi, who, I, in my opinion, almost created rock and roll unknowingly in the way he um, took, instead of just singing a blues about, about being out in the cotton field or whatever, he thought about it, he arranged it, he had verses and choruses, and sort of started the whole way modern pop music goes together, but... There's so many, it would be very hard for me to, to single out too many. Let's whittle things down a little bit here, and, and let me ask you this. If you could get into a time machine and see a performance by a performer, where would you go? Who would you want to see? <sighs> wow, wow, wow. I think probably Frank Sinatra singing with Tommy Dorsey live somewhere yeah. in the early early part. I just loved the way that whole thing went together, and, and I love big groups of horns and Gene Krupa on drums. and oh. it, there, Again, a lot to pick from, but I, I would jump to that immediately. Or maybe Ella Fitzgerald, too. Yeah, just a half hour ago, I was talking to someone about Sinatra with Count Basie at the Sands. So 
there's something about Sinatra in the air today. He was, and, I, and not to get off topic much, but he was the single greatest artist of the 20th century and probably of the 21st, but uh, just an amazing, amazing musician, a vocal musician, just phrasing, timing, oh, way he, oh, anyway, I could, we could go forever on that, but yes, he should always be in the air. Absolutely, without a doubt. What is the nicest thing that a fan or an admirer of your work has ever said to you? <laughs> Just the other day, and I picked this out again because it's recent, I had this photographic exhibit. It was We made this very cool pop-up museum outdoors in Providence, Rhode Island, next to the Dean Hotel and Gallery, and um, thousands of people, this was a thing they have called PVD Fest, Providence Festival, and uh, thousands of people in the streets, coming by and bands marching through. And we had this very cool exhibit. We had, oh, I don't want to take too much time, we had the photos almost suspended as if they were suspended in air from these really beautiful uh, wood sculpture pieces. And some kids started coming by, uh, kids, I say, teenagers, a uh, couple with skateboards, backpacks, hats turned around backwards. And I'm not putting down any any look or, or people, but it, they were wanting to tear not tear things up physically, but they came out, oh, look, a photo exhibit, ha, 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 and they were laughing and joking and, and just coming along. They got about halfway down it, and they got quiet, and then they got by the end, and one guy says, holy blank, look at that, looking at one of the photos. They turned around and came back and went down it two more times and then came over and found me, and we're talking 15, 16-year-old, 17 maybe, and they said, Hey, these things are really cool, but they, you could see their their outlook and things change. So they didn't mean it as a compliment, but I, I just went, wow, that's pretty powerful. Yeah. Because they, they wanted to just, ah, uh, this adult thing, an art thing, ha, 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 and turned into, wow, we like this. Right on. So that was very powerful to me, and I guess yeah. there have been other compliments, but I really, really twigged on that. Right on. So I... Before I get to my last question, I, I don't want to depart from your newest album. I want to ask you this. What do you want the listener to get from this album that you're putting out? The Planets album by 3 at C, available now on Amazon.com. <laughs> Sorry, right on. No, beautiful. It, 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 it's compositions that started out just being what I hope were pretty compositions, whether they were fast or slow or whatever. And then because of what I mentioned, Christine, the flutist, uh, thought up of idea of relating them to planets, and then it morphed into, oh, yeah, this one's this planet, this one's that, this new piece I write is about that. But it, it got me thinking very deeply about our place in space, our, our world and what we're in. And, of course, we're we're a tiny, tiny little corner of the galaxies that we can't even imagine the universe that we can't possibly conceive of. But I wanted to think of, of bigger than Earth, bigger than where we are, without going to where we can't go mentally uh, and understand. And I, But we can understand what is in our immediate solar system area. And uh, people have stared at, at the planets and the stars and the heavens, of course, for as long as people were here and wondered about it. So I wanted to try to capture some of, some of that wonderment. And uh, I, the, the songs themselves, for instance, the early songs, 
because you start inward, you start having left the sun and you start with Mercury and then Venus and then Earth and on out, they're faster, rockier planets. So the the songs are are faster. Uh, they're more up-tempo. They're more uh, pop, sort of like. They're more rocky, if that makes sense. And then when yeah. you get to the, you get past Mars into the uh, asteroid belt and outward, they're more grandiose, more ponderous, more amorphous sort of huge bodies and the songs slow down and and i'm literally trying to to reach into like i'm a like i'm in some little craft going through the thing and take a tour of it so i hope when people hear it they'll they'll think of that and and sort of relate that not only to the planets themselves but to a sense of wonderment about life and and our place in it i guess right on Speaking of our life and our place in it, everybody has a perception of Terry Manning. Your family does, your friends do, those that see your photographs, that listen to your work. But who do you think you are? I honestly think I'm a very fortunate person who's been around a lot of other really great people and that I was able to learn from them or put my little stamp or part of, of that on life or the world or society or whatever or just local friendship things. But so I don't know. I'm just a, a mot- very motivated, up early, working hard person who was also extremely lucky to be around good things. So I, I don't think it's more than that. It's nothing, you know, earth shattering. It's just fun. Right on. That's a great way to wrap everything up. Terry, thank you for opening up your world and giving me a bit of, of, of your wisdom and your stories. I appreciate it, man. Joe, thank you so much. It was Your questions were amazingly good, so I really appreciate your time. Thanks for listening and tuning in to yet another Neon Jazz interview, where we give you a bit of insight into the finest players in Memphis, Texas, New York, Kansas City, and spots all over the world, giving fans all that jazz. And thanks to Terry for his incredible body of work and time. If you want to hear more interviews, go to Famous Interviews with Joe Domino on the iTunes Store or visit theneonjazz.blogspot.com for all things Neon Jazz. Until next time, enjoy the music, my friends. Neon Jazz.